0: Hi, everyone. Jeremy here, Walter's co-host on What Really Matters. Our sincere thanks to all of you who have left us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, which really does help us find a bigger audience and grow the show. So if you haven't already, please consider rating us and leaving a review. Thanks again. And now to this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist, The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week: A world-beating deposit of lithium along the Nevada Oregon border could meet surging demand for this metal, according to a new analysis. An estimated 20 to 40 million tons of lithium metal lie within a volcanic crater formed around 16 million years ago. This is notice, notably larger than the lithium deposits found beneath a Bolivian salt flap, previously considered the largest deposit in the world. But according to one analyst who spoke to Chemistry World, quote, if you believe their back-of-the-envelope estimation, this could change the dynamics of lithium globally in terms of price, security of supply, and geopolitics, close quote. So, Walter... God, God still loves America. News or faux news?
1: News, of course, uh, but um, not necessarily a quick fix. I can only imagine what the permitting process would be for a lithium mine in the United States. And did I hear the word Oregon in there? Um, so basically, you know, this is going to have to be past the scrutiny of the eco warriors of Portland. And I somehow suspect that they're going to keep finding all kinds of reasons why this volcanic, the peace of this volcanic crater should never, never be disturbed. So, uh, unless we actually, as a country, get serious about um, exploiting the resources, using the resources that a benign providence has given us, they won't do any good. And my guess is that, um, look, I mean, this is, I guess, a problem for the environmental movement generally, and in some ways, it's really a movement based on not doing things, wanting to not build dams, not build power plants, not have cars, not have factories. And yet people actually have to have these things. And even more, if you want to shift away from the current energy infrastructure, you have to build a lot of new stuff and a lot of it you're going to have to build in like beautiful spots because or nature spots because that's where the resources are. And so the environmental movement really needs to kind of make up its mind. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I think if environmental protests in Serbia were effective enough to prevent the exploitation of the big lithium mine there, uh, the probably Oregon will probably be no match as well. All right, second story. Palestinian officials have begun discussions with the U.S. and Saudi Arabia about what concessions they might get from any normalization of ties between the kingdom and Israel. It's a change in tack from the Palestinian leadership, according to Bloomberg, which spurned involvement in talks that three years ago led to the Abraham Accords. Aides to President Mahmoud Abbas have laid out a series of requests in meetings with U.S. and Saudi officials, including a freeze on Jewish settlements in the West Bank, the reopening of the PLO office in Washington, full membership in the U.N., and Saudi financial support. The talks are happening as the Biden administration pushes for what would be an historic deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel if it ever happens. News or faux news.
1: Well, let me just first of all say that I'm glad that Mr. Abbas was able to take some time off from deranged anti-Semitic rants in order to sit down and think about uh, bargaining positions for the Palestinian Authority. Um, it's uh, just really heartening to see. Um, it does represent a breath. i would say it is news-ish— um, Uh, It does represent a bit of a change from the old Palestinian position, as you noted, of uh, of basically just saying no, 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 no to all kinds of uh, any talk of normalization between Israel and Arab countries. Um, And that's just healthy realism that um, in the old days, uh, the Arabs, the other Arab countries, did sort of allow the Palestinians to control. uh, negotiations and relations with Israel these days—that's clearly off the table. And I think it points to something else, and and honestly, uh, everything aside, I I think the Palestinian movement needs to take this into account that its basic strategy toward the Zionist movement has, since the 1930s, has been one of rejection. So. It rege- and, and the classic pattern is that in every decade or every generation, it violently and totally rejects compromises, offers, that 10, 20 years down the road start looking like impossible utopias. And this should be a signal about how effective a strategy of rejection really is. The answer is it's a total disaster but that's very hard for someone who wants to lead the Palestinian national movement to say basically folks for the last 100 years we've been going in the wrong direction and we've suffered disaster defeat diminishment uh, until we find ourselves today in the worst position in our history and if we want the um if, if we want our situation to change we've got to change our attitudes and approaches um, a lot of there's some talk about what the Palestinian movement needs is a kind of a Nelson Mandela, a nonviolent person um, who's sort of ready to work with the other side. Actually, what it really needs is a Konrad Adenauer, someone who says we can, we we must base the future of our nation on the fact of defeat. And, and as Adenauer demonstrated, from the you know, out of the ashes of the most terrible defeat that any country has suffered in, 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 in centuries, if not ever, Germany was able to rebuild prosperity, become the center of Europe. Uh, Palestine, the Palestinians need a state-building movement, not a resistance movement. And the sooner they get one, the better, I think, for everybody concerned.
0: All right, our final story of the week. The Biden administration is considering forcing some migrant families who enter the country without authorization to remain within the borders of Texas while awaiting asylum screening. Biden officials hope the remain in Texas idea could help them quickly deport families who fail initial asylum screenings and stem the number of migrants crossing the southern border, which reached an all-time high last month. The proposal, which recalls President Reagan's efforts to limit asylum seekers' ability to travel within the U.S., would force certain migrant families to remain in Texas by tracking their location through GPS monitoring devices like ankle bracelets, according to the LA Times. Is this news or phone news?
1: It is news in the sense that it reveals the utter desperation and bankruptcy of immigration policy. Um, it, it, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, I, there are a lot of things I don't agree with Donald Trump about, but something that he said over and over again, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country, is absolutely 100% right. The inability to think seriously and act honorably and decently about how do you manage issues on the border is, a, is destructive, damaging, and frankly, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's the number one cause of the rise of far-right movements. And if the Biden people were serious about the what they say they're serious about, trying to rebase American politics around the center, trying to... Calm down the agitation on the extremes. They would have seen the border as a major as a major opportunity to do that. Um, and honestly, I cannot myself under, fully understand either the the policy considerations or even the logic that makes this sort of thing seem like a humanitarian idea. Personally, I just don't get it. But the Biden administration, um, the idea that, that uh, remain in Texas is somehow gorgeous and humane while remain in Mexico is an evil Nazi-like social experiment is something I can't wrap my head around. I don't think the average voter is going to uh, wrap their head around and is probably the equivalent of a 50000000000 billion in-kind contribution to the Ted Cruz reelection campaign in Texas. Um, I think we can now say the Biden administration has definitively brought to an end any chance of Texas turning blue in the next couple of election cycles.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the just one quick follow up, you know, the obvious question there being is, is this all just a way to stop Greg Abbott from, you know, bussing migrants to blue cities. I think Eric Adams was in the news recently for saying a continuation of uncontrolled migration in New York City would destroy its services and finances. Maura Healy, the Massachusetts governor, said something similar. I mean, how much of that Abbott's kind of gambits to, you know, bus and fly migrants crossing the border to democratic strongholds? How much of that is is a part of this?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, as far as I can see, it's a perfectly legitimate response by the government of Texas to uh, uh, a completely cynical federal policy. I, I really wonder, where will the Biden administration discover in either law or the Constitution some kind of authority that can tell people they have to remain in a single state uh, of the United States? I... Uh, um, and I, I I mean, goodness, I'm sure no one will ever, who's paid thousands of dollars to coyotes or who is like looking on the Internet, no one will ever figure out a way to take off an ankle bracelet. I mean, that, um, you know, that that surpasses the wit of mortal man. And, and no one would ever be so cynical or devious as to do something like that. Surely um, uh, you, you so. You know, why people simply won't take these things off. And let's remember, the Biden administration is totally committed to not imprisoning people, not in, you know, not sort of deporting them suddenly or anything like that. I mean, you can get into all kinds of criminal um uh situations and not get deported so wait a minute so now taking off the ankle bracelet to get out of texas is somehow the one thing the the terrible the unforgivable crime this is nuts this is not a policy this is nuttery and it i think it does show the utter desperation of an administration which has let what could have been a very manageable policy situation morph into a gigantic walking disaster that shows every sign of putting Donald Trump back in the White
0: House. Okay, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So... Walter, when we talk about foreign policy in the international scene, we've talked a lot about the Indo-Pacific for sure, about the Middle East, about Russia and Ukraine, Europe and NATO, increasingly a lot about Africa as well. And I think many in the foreign policy community are probably guilty of devoting less attention to America's immediate neighborhood than you might otherwise think it deserves. And, you know, this does make some sense, right? As the saying goes, we're surrounded by two vast oceans and two friendly neighbors. We're also the only country in our hemisphere with nuclear weapons, I think, and anything remotely like the economic and military capacities of a superpower. But you take a look around and it does kind of make you pause, right? So the one that does get some attention is the one we were just talking about, you know, the kind of often astonishing violence and horrible economic prospects stretching from, you know, Ecuador up to Nicaragua and Mexico pushing millions of desperate people from a kind of belt of failing or struggling states up to the US border. But there's also Haiti, less than 2000 miles from the US which has become kind of apocalyptically violent and ungovernable and its viability as a nation state isn't really clear. There's the continuing crisis and human tragedy of Venezuela, Peru and Colombia are kind of perpetually on the edge. The U.S.-Cuban relationship, I I guess, is at least stable, but it's not clear how much brighter the island's future looks now than at any time in the last 60 years. The rest of the Caribbean seems stagnant and weak. So what do you make of the current situation in America's backyard, so to speak? And from a strictly geopolitical point of view, as as callous as I know that sounds, how much does it matter for U.S. foreign policy?
1: Well, at the moment, it doesn't seem to matter that much from a pure realpolitik point of view, because not you know um, uh, the fact that Haiti is imploding is bad news or has imploded. I think we can say, speaking of the state, is terrible news for Haitians. Um, not necessarily a lot of news for anybody else. Um, uh, so if you were a cold, cynical Machiavellian, you might just not look at it. But clearly. Um, when we look a little bit more further afield, we you know it's it's obvious that we now have enemies out there, Russia and China and Iran to take three that absolutely want to cause us pain and to uh, uh, obstruct us and destabilize us in our neighborhood. They are as aware, Jeremy as, as you are that, the um, our relative security in our own hemisphere has historically been a major prop of, of American uh, America's global power and our foreign policy generally so uh, why not uh, look for ways to try to take it down a peg and but the, but I think we, we have to understand that the the real problems are not, things that Russia and China or Iran are doing. Um, The real problems are a combination of American policy, but even more than our policy, our preferences. And what do I uh, intersecting with the sort of difficult social structure and economic background of a lot of the countries in our neighborhood? So, you know, this... um, America sort of has... Two sets of policies toward the region. One is the official government policies, development aid, you know, all of these kinds of nice, nice policies. Um, but then the American people have another policy, which is we're just going to snort all the coke up our noses we can get our hands on. And we truly do not care if this wrecks the lives of tens of millions of people in our hemisphere, if this makes narco-traffickers, enables them to replace the state in some places, and turns women and children over to the control of cynical, mafia-type drug lords and worse. We just, as a people, we don't care. You hear of, a, of people that you know using drugs or celebrities and you don't say, my gosh, that's the most terrible thing. Now, we get all bent out of shape if somebody is cruel to an animal somewhere. but um, But as a people, we simply don't care that our own sort of recreational habits are having this kind of impact on innocent people, helpless people. We don't care. And as a result, over decades, these narco-traffickers have been sort of making so much money that they're able to corrupt state institutions, they're able to uh, corrupt the military, they're able to have such pools of capital they can buy their way into legitimate business. So uh, the distinction between uh, criminal mafia elements and Organized business has faded away in some places, Um, and amazingly, now all of this is happening. These are terrible countries to live in, and so people are fleeing, uh, and they're coming. You know, they're coming north. the The problem on our borders is a reflection of our again, not of the government, but of the people, of our malign indifference to any suffering that our quest for pleasure um, can bring. You know, I I would compare this to the way in the 18th century uh, people would drink sugar in their tea without reflecting on, without caring that it was sugar that was fueling this horrendous slave trade across the Atlantic. Those sugar plantations were far and away the most brutal exemplars of slavery. In the 18th century, they were hugely remunerative. And governments couldn't have stopped either the sugar trade or the slave trade in those days. They just weren't strong enough. And fundamentally, the public didn't really want it stopped. And we're in exactly that same position now with the drug trade. So people talk about legalizing it. Um, uh, you know the problem is that on the other end, uh, these drugs are so destructive, um, and uh, with things like fentanyl getting into the mix, um, they keep get becoming more disruptive of communities here. So we have as a result of our popular, our national addiction to recreational drug use, which I think in many ways reflects the hollowing out of our social and religious life in other ways, so that a kind of empty quest for um, satisfaction, gratification, um, replaces normal human life and relationships in in the sort of addiction spiral. Um, so we see states being destroyed, populations being displaced on one side of the border, on the other side of the border, premature death, suicides. You know, when people say that that this country desperately needs a serious moral revival, this is the sort of thing that, that they're talking about. So... Um, you know, on, and on top of that, American societies generally, Latin American societies and the U.S., less true in Canada, uh, maybe they're the exception here, but we are kind of violent societies. The history of European colonization, disease, conquest, slavery, um, all across our hemisphere is, is, is uh, one that has left scars and and consequences that we still feel today obviously we have our race problems in america today we have the situation of the uh, indigenous american peoples but in in central and south america you also have your versions of that and you have in many countries a kind of an upper class that looks like uh, they just walked out of a fashion catalog uh, in italy or Spain, and then you've got all these sort of shorter, darker people working in in the fields and as janitors and whatever, um, and people for in many cases for whom Spanish is a second language, um, and so and and you have tremendous violence. You look at murder rates. Uh, these kinds of things. It's not just in American inner cities. People who sort of say, "Oh my gosh, look at this violence," you know. You look at Central America. You look at certain parts of South America. Violent crime is a part of this sort of American West hemispheric social cultural nexus. Uh, and so, when you when you have these pre existing problems, and then through the kind of narco trafficking erosion of the state um, and the the sort of super empowerment of of criminals, um, you can get something say like in El Salvador, where essentially society had disappeared, and people have hailed this the arrival of a apparent dictator who is going to lock every you know lock up as many people. Don't care at a certain but just do something. So. Um, you know, how much of a practical issue will this be for us? We could probably build a wall along the border, the equivalent of it, and reduce the, um, the impact of migration on us directly. But I think uh, we will continue to rot out from within. Uh, and on the other side of the border, terrible things will start taking shape as— Uh, this criminalized narco-trafficking complex gains power and perhaps, and I think has already begun to, affiliate with terrorist groups and our enemies abroad, people like the Chinese. The Chinese can look at all this and say, they did it to us with the opium war, this is just payback for the 19th century. And I think there are people in China who think exactly that way. So, um, it's a problem. It manifests in many ways as a foreign policy problem. But the heart of this particular problem is inside the United States, I believe.
0: And just one follow-up there about the foreign policy question, but it's it's directly related to, to what you just said. I mean, what does it say, if anything, about American power that we seem so unable to project power? Or I guess maybe a, a better way of putting it is We seem unable to build or provide any kind of order in our immediate neighborhood, even though the failure to do so has completely rocked our domestic politics with the immigration issue and the drug issue, as you said. I mean, to exaggerate quite a bit, I realize, and put it very crudely, but hopefully in a helpful sort of way, it almost kind of makes you flinch a bit when you hear Americans, even putting the war in Ukraine aside, talking about how Russia exports nothing but Chaos to its neighbors and offers them nothing besides domination because it can't actually provide order or development again, I understand this is not a great analogy, but it, it kind of makes you think like how good is the u s at this on its own periphery
1: Well, I would say here that there is we have to be a little bit careful because um, um, the u s is actually pretty good at certain kinds of things if a country um You know, there's an old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And in that sense, like, say, after World War II with Europe and Japan, um, you had people there who knew what an orderly society looked like, a prosperous, modern, technologically advanced society looked like, and really all they needed was a frame, a proper framework and some security, and they would just go about and do it. A little bit of maybe financial aid, pump priming at the beginning. You know, we can do that. Um, but what we can't do, and, and I think what nobody can really do is when there, you know, when there is chaos, all the power in the world will not help you deal with a society that is socially imploding. Um, you can, you know, military power can protect you from an explosive state that is threatening others, uh, but an, an imploding society all of the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. And I think we saw that, you know, in, we see it in Lebanon. We saw it in Iraq, Syria, Libya, where these societies have kind of, again, they've rotted out under these corrupt, um, personalistic, crazy, eccentric dictators or cynical warlords, what have you and when you take off that hard concrete shell of a Saddam Hussein dictatorship or the Gaddafi dictatorship there's kind of nothing left underneath except these sorts of you know these armed bands of thugs who start to go here and contest for power so um you know what so that if there was a country in South America that had decided to go full fascist and was drilling its people to, you know, attack their neighbors, we could probably, like, stop Argentina from conquering Uruguay if that's, you know, if that's what it came down to. Uh, But but when a country collapses internally, there's not much we can do, and especially when the leading cause, a leading cause of that collapse is— the growth of of criminal narco-trafficking you know and, and remember we will be with one hand trying to calm the waters down and build up south american central american states while with the other hand we're ripping the foundations out in order to get more nose candy and other drugs uh to feed our own addictions and 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 narcissism so we you know that we're we've screwed up the hemisphere pretty royally and we've also screwed up ourselves
0: okay that does it for the big conversation let's end on the tip of the week walter you and i were recently talking about ivanhoe by walter scott i think even you one of the world's great anglophiles didn't read it until uh, much later in life so definitely, Ivanhoe and maybe the Waverley novels and Scott more generally, uh, we agree is criminally underrated today or underread probably. So tell our listeners why they shouldn't make the same mistake we did by waiting and should dive into Sir Walter Scott immediately.
1: Well, let's first correct one impression. Um, this is not a novel for Anglophiles. This is more a novel for Scotophiles. Uh, uh, you know the the um I, Ivanhoe is set in England but Sir Walter Scott really um was was you know the Waverley novels are really on the border and in Scotland he was a he was not a novelist he's not like Jane Austen a sort of comfy novelist of the home counties or something like that um uh, I would one thing to realize again is every if you if you like Trollope. If you like Austin, if you like Dickens, a lot of what they did was simply steal from from Walter Scott. That he pioneered the historical novel. He pioneered the kind of, you know, the the sort of novel of of English politics, where he takes the cultural and political divides of England of his day and brings weaves them into human stories his plots are terrific um they're just fun that's basically don't do this out of duty you know this is these novels sir walter scott was the stephen king of his time or the john grisham you know these are these were not written to be dreary classics literary classics that that uh, school children have to be whipped into, uh, you know, quote, appreciating. These are fun. So give them a try. You know what? If you don't like them, go read something else. But I think, you know, I think you'll find they're actually fun to read. And that's really the the most important test.
0: All right. There you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.